I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey folks, uh, you ever wish you could be in a group chat with a bunch of cool, informed as hell friends who can help you process all the wild things going on in the world? Who can help you make sense of the news on days when, you know, the news doesn't make any sense? Well, you can get that here on Undistracted, and you can get it in your inbox twice a week with the Meteor Newsletter. We're giving you news, action items, and fresh takes from underrepresented parts of the feminist community every Tuesday and Thursday. Click the link down below in our show notes to subscribe. It's Brittany. We have finally arrived at the final episode of the season. I know, I know. I'm going to be sad to leave y'all for a little while, too. I mean, at least I hope that's what you all are thinking. (laughs) This season, really this whole year, has been a ride, child. In some ways, this year felt like 2022 Volume 3 since we entered and will end this year still in a pandemic. Here on the show, we open the season with voices like Dr. Uche Blackstock on how to fight pandemic fatigue. And we talked sports and racism with Jamel Hill and Carrie Champion, student loan forgiveness with Senator Elizabeth Warren, something that we actually saw some traction on this year, y'all. And we talked to the hopeful next governor of Texas, Beto O'Rourke, on exactly what the F is going on down in Texas. We spoke to Maria Teresa Kumar on the voting rights fight of our lifetime. Michelle Colon gave us insight on the last days of Roe versus Wade in Mississippi. Willow Egerton walked us through what it's like to be a trans girl in 2022. And George M. Johnson shared just what it's like to have the second most banned book in America. And of course... This season, I got real, real personal when the love of my life and I talked about the love of our lives, the harrowing birth of our sweet, sweet baby M. Yeah, you you have been amazing uh, in this whole journey. I I just want to make sure and honor that, that I have watched you do the hardest thing that you have ever done and just shine at it. This year has been one of the hardest of my entire life. It changed me in ways that I am still discovering. And it is such an immense privilege to be discovering it with all of you. We are undistracted. On the show today, we'll be honoring the five-year anniversary of the Me Too hashtag with playwright Mary Catherine Nagel, organizer Monica Ramirez, and the movement's very own founder, Tarana Burke. We're going beyond the hashtag to look at what happens after you say Me Too. 
What do we owe the people who said me to? What do we owe the communities where where sexual violence is happening? That's coming up, but first, it's the news. And we are going to start in the world of beauty. So if you saw the words Ulta boycott trending this week, here is why. Last Thursday, the chain cosmetics supply store Ulta released an episode of its bi-weekly podcast called The Beauty Of. This particular episode featured an interview with actress, comedian, and overall TikTok legend Dylan Mulvaney, who also happens to be a trans woman. And Dylan joined a conversation with David Lopez, a gender-fluid Latinx celebrity hairstylist. Now, both of them came together to talk about self-expression, identities, and obviously getting glam, right? You know, I think somebody asking you this describe your signature look question might say to you like, no, but actually like, which one? And I I would never ask you that because that's the beautiful thing about your expression is it changes. Yeah, also put a clip of the video up on Twitter, like all of us who host podcasts do. And yeah, the trolls were ablaze in the comment section. Sadly, unsurprisingly, many users complained that for a trans woman to talk about girlhood was, quote, misogynist. And they took offense at Dylan's desire to someday become a mother and said the whole thing was woman-facing, which they say is like blackface? where someone pretends to be a woman but isn't. I can't even keep up with the bullshit. But in the following days, there were calls to just straight up boycott the company. Now, Ulta has come forward in defense of this iconic episode and the folks who starred in it, saying that they believe that, quote, beauty is for everyone. I mean, isn't that the point? Obviously, we love that. I'm gonna have to go fill up my shopping cart. I love Ulta. I love Sephora. Listen, I love anything that makes me feel good and everybody should have that feeling. But y'all, this whole episode taps into a backlash that we're seeing against trans people that is very real and that goes far beyond Twitter. That cultural backlash means real, physical, psychological, economic, and emotional consequences for trans and non-binary people. So I want to take just a second to remind everybody that we control this discourse and that womanhood, like every other kind of identity, is not a zero-sum game. My cis sisters, I'm here to tell you that holding trans women back actually does not make us any more free. And just because someone else identifies as a woman, that does not erase your rights. When another marginalized group wins, we actually all win. And our trans friends need our love more than ever right now, and they always deserve it. So to my sisters, trans and cis, to my siblings, to all my people across the spectrum, we love you. And we won't let anybody convince us that you're not worth that. So next up, I want to call attention to an issue that has been, shall we say, brewing for the past couple of weeks. Three members of the Los Angeles City Council face calls to resign from President Biden. (laughs) After a recording service of a now not so secret meeting that they had about redistricting. So in the recording, City Council President Nuri Martinez, along with Council Members Kevin DeLeon and Gil Cedillo, all Democrats, mind you, are heard talking about how to divvy up the city politically. And here's a quick rundown of what was said and trigger warning, it is not pretty. Martinez is heard to have described white Councilman Mike Bonin's son, who is black, as, quote, looking like a monkey. And then she goes on to describe indigenous immigrants from Oaxaca as so ugly. And then when speaking about another L.A. County district attorney, Martinez was heard as saying, F that guy. He's with the Blacks. 
glaring racist comments aside, this recording revealed how schemy and premeditated behind-the-scenes political redistricting can be. And yes, it is often wildly racist, whether they use slurs or not. This exposes a blatantly intentional effort to marginalize Black voters. It's not just offensive, it's immoral. And it needs to be illegal. Now, as of the moment we're recording, some, but not all of the council members have resigned. And it's unclear if President Biden's urging will make a difference. But I want to take this moment as an opportunity to clear something up. Just like the last story, say it with me, y'all. There is no progress without, yeah, y'all know the word. It's like the basis of this whole podcast, intersectionality. Nuri Martinez was the first Latina to be appointed president of the city council, something that the folks in the undistracted world would celebrate. And that would have been even more of a victory if she had stood in solidarity with her Black neighbors. Anti-Blackness is global and it roots so many other isms. We get absolutely nowhere in dismantling systemic oppression if we're not uprooting anti-Blackness and championing all marginalized voices, period. Representation is nothing without justice. I want to close our news rundown by following up on the Iran protests, which are emerging as a truly historic event led by young people. It started roughly a month ago when Masa Amini, who had been detained by Iran's, quote, morality police, died in custody. Y'all remember, since then, protests against the repressive regime have grown across the country. Young women have been posting videos of themselves removing their headscarves. They've demonstrated inside of schoolyards. They've even cut their hair on camera, chanting women, life, freedom. As we said the last time we talked about this, this is not about being pro or anti-hijab. It's about being pro-agency and bodily autonomy. And these young folks' displays of rage and solidarity are so hopeful, but the consequences have been absolutely devastating. The Iranian government has made mass arrests, cut the country's internet, and instituted deadly violence. In fact, the nonprofit Iran Human Rights just revealed that of the at least 215 people killed since protests began, 27 of them were children. For context, these kids are protesting a regime that has made its best efforts to indoctrinate them with absolute loyalty for essentially their entire lives. In a music video published by the Iranian media earlier this year, thousands of boys and girls are seen singing a song called Salute Commander. The lyrics literally say, I'm a child, but the life of my family and I all belong to you. Now, the Iranian government is detaining what they call defiant children in mental health facilities, a.k.a. glorified detention centers, in an effort to reform them. This regime has already proved that it does not care about women, and the same clearly goes for children. It's our job to make sure this story does not go away and to reach out in solidarity across the globe. So for more information on organizations you can support in solidarity with Iran, please see our show notes this week. And lastly, I want to wrap up our final news rundown of the season with a small request. 
Just like that last story, it's really easy for the things that are most important to go underreported. And y'all know that here on Undistracted, we are committed to taking those stories, those stories that sometimes fly under the radar or simply don't get the attention they deserve, are talked about. So over the next few months, while we are on hiatus, getting a great season three together for you, more and more untrending news stories will surface. And without enough eyes and ears on them, they might not receive appropriate action and recognition. So please, please, please pay attention to BIPOC and LGBTQ news. Pay attention to grassroots political candidates and to the protests happening around the globe. Talk about them at dinner parties, elevate them on your socials, and keep the mission of our show alive while we take a little production breather and plan for season three. Coming up, I'll be talking to three phenomenal women, including me two founder Tarana Burke, about the fight to address sexual violence and what the world owes us when we say Me Too, right after this short break. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, while we're here, want to stay undistracted a little bit more? Sign up for the Meteor Newsletter. We'll send you inclusive feminist takes on the week's news, what's happening in pop culture, and easy ways to make a difference in your community twice a week. Plus, regular takes from some of my favorite voices, like Rebecca Carroll and Dahlia Lithwick, Renee Bracey Sherman, and more. Join our growing community. Click the link down in our show notes right now to get the Meteor in your inbox. You might even find some bonus undistracted content. I'll see you there. And we are back. Now, most people think of Me Too as an explosive viral moment in 2017 that coincided with the rape allegations against Harvey Weinstein and really the domino effect of sexual violence accusations across all industries. We're going to talk about that moment and everything it did for the world in just a sec, but First, I want to take us back, like back to 2006, when the movement was actually founded. That's when survivor and activist Tarana Burke decided that we needed a space for those who had experienced sexual violence to connect with others who could relate. Tarana has been doing this work for literal decades, recognizing the magnitude of this crisis before so many cultural institutions did the same. Now fast forward to 2017 when the hashtag went viral and millions upon millions of people, mostly women, showed up online to say, yes, this happened to me too. 
And over the past five years, we've seen an increase in sex crime reporting by about 13% nationwide, and hundreds of toxic executives have been ousted, though we obviously know plenty of others remain. But just like violence occurred long before 2017, it continues to persist long after. We still struggle to believe women and survivors, especially those who are far removed from the public eye. Addressing sexual violence means more than calling out just bad men. It's an entire cultural reframe, one that Tarana Burke is more committed to now than ever. And we are so honored to bring Mary Catherine Nagel, brilliant attorney, playwright, and champion of Native rights, and legendary organizer and attorney Monica Ramirez, who's advocating on behalf of farm workers and migrant women, onto the show today in conversation with me and Tarana. Tarana, Monica, Mary Catherine, it is... Really powerful to be with you all on today, especially given the conversation that we're having. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. So I kind of want to start with a speed round. Take us back to the early days after the Me Too hashtag started going viral, which is, of course, much later than Me Too began. What do you all remember about that time? And what has changed in your life since then? Tarana, I want to start with you as the person who literally launched the Me Too movement in 2006. Well, I can get people to listen to when I talk about sexual violence. <laughs> that's, the, that's probably the number one way my mm. life has changed. I think that before this, it was really, really difficult to get uh, sexual violence on people's agenda, to get it on the radar, to get people to think about it as mm -hmm. a social justice issue. You know, I've been known to do work around racial justice for a long time and was, you know, moved in those circles. And every time you bring up sexual violence in relation to racial violence, when you bring it up in, re in relation to any kind of violence, it was silenced, pushed mm. to the side, and not thought of in the same way. And now, we have been having a sustained dialogue about sexual violence in the same breath as yeah. these other issues for five years. And that is a huge change, a yeah. huge, humongous change. Yeah. Monica, how about you? Well, I remember thinking when everything was breaking open, like, first of all, I knew that it was not going to be the same again. You know, me and the farm worker movement and, and lots of folks around the country, we had been trying for so long to get people to pay attention and to, to get people to treat it like a serious issue that people needed to fund and support. But the other thing that happened that I thought was really odd was that people around me started talking about like what to do and like, where should we go now with Me Too? And I kept thinking like, was well, anyone asked Tarana? Like, you know, like who are we to be deciding where to go now? And and I feel like one of the things that has changed and, and Tarana, you might disagree with me, but I feel like one of the things that has changed is that we held so strong about pushing back to say to folks, no, like if Tarana created a movement and we are honored to be part of it and she will help us all understand the way forward. And, and in, a, in a really important way, I think that we all sort of stood by each other to say, we're going to make sure that people are going to respect our leadership. No one else gets to decide for us the way the work should be moving. And I feel like that was an important show of not only of solidarity, but also of power. I am coming with the same question to you, Mary Catherine. What do you remember about five years ago? And what's the the kind of major change in your life in the last five years? Well, I think for, you know, as a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and as an attorney that works with organizations like the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center and Illuminative, you know, 
we have been working to address just the rampant sexual assault Native women and children experience throughout Indian country mm -hmm. in the United States. And one of the huge issues we've always been focused on is invisibility, is just that survivors have no visibility mm -hmm. to share their stories. They aren't believed. But I think one huge shift I have seen is that following the hashtag MeToo movement is it is much harder for especially men in positions of power to completely silence survivors. And more people are responding to survivor stories saying, let's listen to her or them. Let's mm. hear what they have to say. Let's believe them. And that just didn't happen five years ago, right? If you were someone who was victimized, especially by someone who had any kind of fame or celebrity, you were, you were just demonized mm -hmm. or further victimized, right? If you tried to tell your story. And, you know, I think it's been really empowering, especially for some of our youth, to know that it's okay to speak your truth. Mm-hmm. You know, when the hashtag first started to take off, I think a lot of people in the media, especially a lot of power brokers in media, had trouble wrapping their minds around the fact that so many people have had this experience, right? They just were, I think, overwhelmed by the onslaught of folks raising their hands and saying, yes, me too. And I think that their response in a lot of ways was to be fascinated by the individual stories, right? So they would pick up the stories of people who already had a degree of privilege, celebrities, politicians, white women, et cetera. They started getting a disproportionate amount of the attention. Monica, you work extensively with migrant women and farm workers and undocumented folk. Are you seeing the effects of the movement in spaces where there is historically less attention given to these issues? Yeah, Bernie, thanks. I mean, I come from the farm worker community. You know, I, I, I am of right. the community. And I think that initially there wasn't much of a conversation when things were breaking through about farm worker women and domestic workers and others. And, and, and we made it so that the conversation was more inclusive. And I think that you know, there was this period of time where there's a lot of tension on mm -hmm. people from different backgrounds who are experiencing sexual violence, and then it sort of faded away. And And I think our job is to just continue to bring it to the surface, bring it to the surface, because um, we also have to make sure that we're not only talking about the problem mm -hmm. of sexual violence against farm worker women and others who are not as visible, but we have to make sure that, that the solutions are centered on them and also the change that's being driven, that we're showing the way that People from community who are thought of as, quote unquote, powerless, our communities have been the biggest drivers of change historically, not just on this issue. And so it is our work yeah. to make sure that people understand that and that whenever there is a win, right. that it isn't only the privileged who are making those wins possible. Yeah, yeah. You know, Mary Catherine, you spoke to this a little bit, but when we talk about these issues of invisibility disproportionately hitting certain group of people, we're absolutely talking about Native women. Um, sexual and gender-based violence against Native women is happening at far higher rates than in the larger population. We know that according to the Center for Health Progress, Nat Native women are at least two and a half times more likely than non-Native women to experience sexual assault and rape. So you talked a little bit about how it's different. I'm curious what your work is now to continue to fight against that invisibility? I, I really appreciate that question, and it's it's so important. And I think that 
you know, if you look at before hashtag Me Too, if there was ever a film or a show that tried to touch on this issue, Native women really only entered into it as the victims. They weren't characters that got developed. They weren't people mm. that you um, grew to know and love. They just showed up at the point that they were to be killed or raped or both. And we're seeing a shift. Mm. And that part of that is mm. getting Native content creators into creative positions where they have authority to write these stories. And I think it's just, that's why it's so important, right? But I think too, you know, seeing how the hashtag Me Too movement changed the conversation even outside of Hollywood, right? We're talking about in politics, the United States Congress, things happening where uh, all of a sudden mm -hmm. individuals who are in positions of power who had no accountability were being held accountable for their sexual assault actions. And I think when I think about Native women and visibility, I think about this shift. We still have a ways to go. You know, today, Native women are more likely to be murdered than any other population in the United States. Mm. And on some reservations, our women are murdered at 10 times the national homicide rate. And yet, when we go missing or are murdered, the FBI, who has jurisdiction, refuses to investigate. And, mm. you know, I just think about the Harvey Weinstein film that was made <laughs> several years ago where mm. the FBI was shown in Wind River as these amazing heroes that come in and investigate this film where the Native women were just victimized. That was the only, their only role in the film. And the FBI was shown as these heroes when on the ground, in real life, the FBI does not investigate yeah. the murders and homicides of Native women. I know as an attorney who represents those families, we've been writing letters and making phone calls to the FBI for years. They're not investigating a single one of the cases I work on, even though they could investigate each one of them. We're still living, like as you said, the most vulnerable of vulnerable mm. are different communities of color who experience disproportionate rates of victimization. When they're victimized, in many ways, they're still left invisible and our institutions of power that should be doing something about these crises are still not not arriving on the scene and doing what they need to do. Absolutely. You know, Tarana, when we met for the first time, you didn't know me from a can of paint, but you were getting an award. And I went and found you and I just thanked you for starting this movement and for speaking up for so many of us who hadn't yet spoken our truths. And I was very specifically talking about myself because up until that point, I had not said out loud in public that I am a survivor of sexual assault. Fast forward to last year on, on our last season close, we were talking about your book. And so it's been another year since then. You're doing a campaign this month in October called Beyond the Hashtag. Where is that taking us? As somebody who, you know, started this work, of course, beforehand, I absolutely... I'm grateful for the hashtag. I, I, I want that to be said, right? We would not be here if not for that moment, for that viral moment. But what we mean by beyond the hashtag is that it also has been taken and co-opted in so many different ways over the last five years. People have taken the hashtag and turned it into a verb. People have stopped at the hashtag also, right? Mm -hmm. And what we want to do is take people beyond the hashtag because I also think that people don't realize that every single hashtag is a human being. There's real people with real lives and real stories. And so we have to move beyond just looking at them on the screen and thinking, thinking of them as a statement or a hashtag and think about the material lives of survivors. We're going beyond the hashtag to look at what happens after you say me too. What do we owe the people who said me too? What do we owe the communities where these where sexual violence is happening? And that's the work of Me Too International. There is 
so much that needs to happen on the ground. There's so much that needs to happen beyond just in That's Hollywood, right. beyond just in, you know, the halls of Washington or in the government. We, you know, we're releasing our framework this week. And it's, as I describe it in the beginning, it's like all the words that I could, that, that we could collectively gather to describe what we are as a movement, which is we are a movement about healing and action. But also, when you have 12 million people, and I know y'all have heard me say this, and I will continue to say it over and over again. When you have 12 million souls that cry out in a 24-hour time period and say that this horrific thing happened to me too, what do we owe them? We have to owe them something. Mm-hmm. There has to be a response. And I don't think there has been an adequate enough response in the last five years to the people, to the survivors. These are citizens. These are non-citizens. These are human beings. These are people who vote. These are people who who stand up for all kinds of other things in this country. When do we stand up for them? Right? That's really what Beyond the Hashtag is. You would think that there would be massive studies. You would think that there would be massive resources being poured into this as an issue, and there is not. And so what happens when people don't do what they're supposed to do? We organize. That's what we're trained to do as a response. And so as an organization, this year-long campaign is not just about celebrating this day. You know, Mm -hmm. we're going to commemorate that day. We're going to talk about that day, but we're going to spend the next year really digging into what the response is to the people who said Mm -hmm. me to. And when you talk about what we owe survivors, embedded in that is the acknowledgement that saying me too is, can be, and has been very costly for people. Oh, absolutely. It has not come without blowback. Talk talk some about that. Absolutely. I don't think that people truly understand the cost of just saying me too. And there's several, yeah. there's there's layers to that cost. You know, it was one of my first fears when I when I started seeing people say me too. It's like there's no container to hold these people. I know what it's what disclosure, you know, in, in a real sounds really clinical, but what what saying me too is really is disclosure, what we call in the field disclosure. And typically when a person discloses, if you are in clinical work, we wrap around a person who discloses. Right. There are systems in place to help a person Mm -hmm. who discloses, whether it's therapeutic things in place or there are a set of friends in place, whether there's a peer to peer situation in place. None of that exists when you disclose on the Internet. And so Mm -hmm. there is a mental and emotional cost that happens. There is a cost that is related to, like I said, social status and all the rest of that that somebody has to pay and it always lands in the lap of the survivor and it's not our debt to pay. Mm-hmm. Not particularly, it is definitely not our debt to pay alone, but we have been left to pay it alone over and over again. This st- studies have come out that say it costs on average $122,000 mm-hmm. a year in, uh, over, the, over the course of your lifetime for people who survive sexual violence. That's if you can afford it. Native women have the highest rate of sexual violence in this country, followed by Black women who have the second highest rate of sexual violence in this country. Then you think about a third mm. thing, Native women, Black mm. women, and other women of color. And I'm, just, I'm just using women for this moment, who have the lowest economic status in this country. You think they can afford an additional $122,000 over the course of their lifetime? 
So they're not the ones spending that $122,000 for healing resources or what have you over the course of their lifetime, which means that they are finding other ways to survive. Mm. But then we are the ones who blame those Black and Native and Latinx and other women of color when they go to drugs or alcohol and other things, right? This is all inextricably linked. These things are all deeply linked together. But we look at them separately. And this is all about survival. If Mm -hmm. we don't take survival seriously and look at it as a social justice issue, we don't take sexual violence seriously and look at it as a social justice issue that is linked to mass incarceration, that is linked to um, gun violence, that is linked to economic injustice, that is linked to all sorts of injustices that we are fighting, then we are making a big mistake. I just want to, I want to take a moment to honor Tarana because in all the years that I've done this work, and I am a survivor too, and I come from a family of folks who who are survivors, and in all the years that I've done this work, there has never been as much of an emphasis on healing as Tarana has placed on it. You know, for, for, for many, many years, the emphasis was on punitive measures, right? What were the, what was going to be the cost to the perpetrator, right? And and that was the only kind of justice that people could really focus on. And, you know, I remember early in my legal career when I was representing a farm worker woman who had been sexually assaulted at work. And I remember, uh, you know, talking about the situation in an event and, and, and someone came to me afterwards because she was a, an immigrant woman, migrant woman. And they said to me, well, you know, shouldn't she have to give something up? This idea that this undocumented woman should have had to experience this violence because she had the luxury and privilege of being in this country and that should have been what she had to give up. And I remember being so struck by that. Like, it felt like I had been slapped, right? And it's because this dehumanization has happened over and over and over again. And for so long, you know, as survivors, we were taught that we we had to just put up with it. And Tarana has called us all over and over again to place the humanity of survivors at the forefront. And I think, you know, thinking back to your first question about what has shifted in the past five years, I think that has been one of the greatest shifts and one of the most important shifts because now there are more tools to talk about what it is that we need to try to find healing when we all know that it's a lifelong journey. That's right. When we talk about those healing spaces and people wrapping their arms around me, this is what that looks like, right? Honoring one another's labor, honoring one another's struggle, honoring one another's survivorship, honoring one another's thriving. Tarana, I know that your next book is about grace. And this is an interesting shift, I think, for a lot of people because, to Monica's point, this conversation has gone so quickly from hashtag me to to punishment, punishment, punishment. And here you are talking about grace. Why this book right now? What what does grace mean in the context of Me Too? I'm so nervous about the book, by the way, right? Because I think it's going to be a big shift for a lot of people. And we are Mm. not accustomed to talking about things like grace or like hope. But I do think that when I look around and at at the work we're doing, and I think about movement work, and and especially in in this conversation, when do we get grace? The book is not about Christianity, but I think about, you know, obviously when you think about grace, you think about it in the Christian context for a lot of people mm-hmm. and how like the right wing has really taken over the conversation about Christianity and tried to own 
Christianity in that way. And I'm like, if y'all really Christian and think about grace, when do you extend grace to folks like me Mm. who look like me, right? You don't don't Mm. really understand grace. Where's the space? Where's the space for grace for my rage? When you see Mm. me, when somebody, something happens like George Floyd or Breonna Taylor and you see me raging in the streets and you see, where's the grace for that? You know, so who Mm -hmm. actually gets um, and and um, gets to have grace in this moment. Those are some of the things I'm I'm looking at. But also, I'm thinking about the way we work. I've been in this work a long, long, long time. Right? I'll be 50 next year. I started doing this work as a teenager, and one of the things I really believe in, I believe in liberation politics. Mm-hmm. But I believe that we are not going to be successful mm-hmm. in anything we do if it's not accompanied by a politic of grace. Because whatever this thing is that we're fighting for and working towards, when we get there and we look around and think about how we fought to get there, Mm. if we don't do that with a politic of grace, what are we fighting for? Those are some of the things that I'm talking about. Who deserves grace? Who gets to have grace? But also, how do we incorporate a politic of grace in our liberation work? My vision for how we work to end sexual violence might be wildly different from yours. But as long as yours is not detrimental, the book is called Revolutionary Grace because it's more than just what we've been taught about grace. You know, because again, there's some folks who who I am not extending grace to, right? Like the the folks who are are trying to kill my people, I don't think you deserve grace. (laughs) And I'm okay with saying that. I, I'm okay with saying that. If you're trying to kill my mm. folks, I don't think you deserve mm-hmm. grace. And I think we are asked to extend grace all too often. Those of us yeah. who are oppressed and pushed to the margins, I think we are asked to extend grace all too often yeah. when, we, when we are never extended grace. So, you know, it may kick up some dust. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> I got to get some more writing there. I mean, when we talk about living in a world where sexual violence is fully a thing of the past. It requires restorative justice, right? It requires space for growth because there's a whole lot that people need to learn and understand differently than what we may have been taught or what we moved through before. You know, Mary Catherine, you work as an attorney, right? So in in one way, you're connected to um, a very traditional pathway of what accountability looks like for those who have harmed someone. And yet, as you've already shared, you're a citizen of the Cherokee Nation um, and you do this work committed to and with fellow Indigenous people. I'm curious if there is wisdom from your own cultural background that you feel like we could be turning to as we have these conversations about accountability and justice. Absolutely. Different tribal nations have different traditional practices, but, um, you know, before sort of the Western model was kind of shoved onto us, a lot of different tribal nations, what it's now being called restorative justice, right? You know, as a lawyer, when you look at the law, you know, the United mm-hmm. States and the Western model is very much, if someone sexually assaults someone, it is the state versus that perpetrator in the on in terms of the V that goes into court, right? It's the United States versus Jones or Oklahoma versus Jones. But traditionally for our tribes, 
it wasn't seen as the sovereign versus the perpetrator. It was right. the victim and the victim's right. clan, their family, that everyone's affected by a trauma and a, and a violation like right. that versus that individual and their family. How is that family going to atone for the trauma caused by this person's bad deed? And so it wasn't, mm-hmm. um, oh, we've got to make this person mm-hmm. right vis-a-vis the state or the sovereign. It was, we've got to make this person right vis-a-vis the, the victim mm-hmm. and the victim's family. And the justice that was initial that was traditionally enacted sometimes would be by leaders of you know clan mothers or different leaders of a particular clan that would say, mm-hmm. okay, the perpetrator is going mm-hmm. to go hunt for this family or perform this role or this function or, you know, it wasn't necessarily oh let's go incarcerate them and that will solve the problem. And you know, I'm I'm not hundred percent opposed to any system of incarceration. You know, work very hard to restore tribal criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians who come onto our lands and, and rape our women. And sometimes I do think people need to be put in jail, but I think that's a, a piece of a much larger solution that we're often overlooking. It is true that, you know, Native women are more likely to be raped or sexually assaulted than anyone else in the United States. The Department of Justice has reported mm-hmm. that the vast majority of those crimes are being committed by non-Indians. But I know in our own communities, when when people in our own communities commit them, we're looking at intergenerational trauma, right? We're looking at people who were whose parents or themselves were taken away to a boarding school where they were sexually abused or other traumas. And so we do know if we want to stop this cycle of violence, we can't just throw people in jail, right? We've got to talk about other forms of healing. And that's where I think restorative mm. justice and these other things, lessons to be learned from tribal nations that had those systems in place. Yeah. Monica, a similar question, because I think when Tarana said a lot of people have stopped at the hashtag, what I've seen a lot of people do beyond the hashtag is one thing, right? And it's just to cancel toxic people, often men. But you just, I'm canceling you. It's I've unfollowed you. I've blocked you. And that's it, right? How do we get to this place of restorative justice so that we can really create not just lasting accountability, but a truly changed society, right? Because fear-based punitive measures don't get us there. Well, I mean, I think that we would all agree that survivors have to be in the lead and survivors need to say what is needed and how do we get there and how do we show grace? How do we demonstrate love? How do we love and lead differently? Like survivors have the answers Mm -hmm. and we just have to continue to make space to allow survivors to be able to tell us right? For mm-hmm. us as survivors to speak and for other survivors. And and I think that, you know, this, um, this notion that there's one solution, like we have to do some unlearning there. Mm-hmm. There is not one solution. And justice looks different for everyone. And healing looks different for everyone. And so this like cookie cutter, one size fits all yeah. solution, it isn't there. It doesn't exist. And so we have to continue to gather, to learn, to educate, to make space, to lift up. And so we have got to be fiercely committed to doing the work of nonviolence and of justice, even amongst each other. We've got to be Mm -hmm. fiercely committed to that. And I think that is how we will find a new way forward. Absolutely. I mean, you talk about us learning and growing our understanding of all of the possibilities for the solutions, because publicly... We've got a pretty tried, true, narrow approach to to ending sexual violence, if that's even the public commitment, which I think is is arguable, right? Tarana, I know that you dream of a world where we truly take this seriously as an issue, as a social justice issue. 
you know, in the same way that we have a moonshot approach to ending cancer and that people every single year commit their time, their talent, their treasure to making that possible, having that same level of commitment to ending sexual violence, are we getting closer to that? I want to say yes. I I never thought I would see a day where we would take to the streets to march against, you know, sexual violence around the issue of sexual violence. I think the last five years, we took a leap ahead in this work that would have taken us probably 20 years. And I think I can say that pretty confidently. Mm. It's We still have a tremendous amount of work to do. But I think that the work that has happened in the last five years, the progress that has happened in the last five years, without this viral moment that really sort of propelled things forward, would have taken a tremendous amount of work and a, and a longer period of time. So yes, I do think that we're moving closer, closer than I thought that I would see in my lifetime. I always say my, my assignment is to do everything mm-hmm. I can with what I've been given while I'm here so that I can till the soil for whoever's coming next. I think that there is some brilliant young person right now who is watching us and who is plotting and planning on how to do whatever they see us doing much better and saying, ooh, I wish they would do this. And I can't wait for that young person to get their moment to come in, right? We have to start now talking to young people it's in school age about consent, about bodily autonomy, so that they are second nature, so that those things, those ideas are second nature to young people coming up. I always use the analogy around cigarettes. You know, kids nowadays, even though there's still cigarettes, people still smoke and they use the electronic cigarettes now, they have no idea what it was like 25, 30 years ago that people could smoke in airports and, you know, walk down the street smoking cigarettes in restaurants, right? Because there's been, there was so much work. There were multiple interventions that happened. There were cultural and legal and medical and community interventions that happened that shifted the norm away from what we all grew up with. And so what we have to do is shift the norm so that young people look at it and be like, oh my God. What are you talking about date rape? Who does that? You know, like, oh my God, consent. Of course we ask for consent. You don't touch people without asking, right? Like, it's just like a no-brainer. So we just, we want to shift culture in a way that young people are thinking about it so differently that then the the next generation after that are just like, this is not even done. Yeah, and I think that's how we get closer and closer. And that feels like the perfect note to end on. Monica, Mary Catherine, Tarana, thank you so much for all you do for us and for the world. Thank you for closing out season two with us. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. Thank you. Mary Catherine Nagel is a playwright and partner at Pipestem Law, a firm specializing in the tribal sovereignty of Native nations. Monica Ramirez is an organizer, activist, attorney, and founder of Justice for Migrant Women. Tarana Burke is an author, activist, 2017 Time Person of the Year, and founder of the Me Too movement. Y'all, movements like Me Too are built by everybody who dares to imagine and to fight to raise their hands and reclaim their stories. But it's not just about them. It's about every one of us. And we don't get to this moment five years later, and we certainly don't get to a world free of sexual and gender-based violence without each and every person playing whatever role they choose. 
But we all have to choose. What can I do to help at my job, in my life, on my street, on my block, with the people I know, that I pray with, that I see every day at daycare? If the whole world's a stage, then the play cannot go on without you saying the lines and playing the role that you were born for. We all lose the plot with each actor who bows out. So now is the time to think seriously about what next right thing we can each do to inch toward liberation. And then go do it with sincerity and urgency and and commitment. So much has happened in those five years. So much has happened in this year. And as much as things have changed, let me tell you what's exactly the same. My deep, deep gratitude for this undistracted community of ours for you all's grace and your curiosity and candor, for the power of your word of mouth advertising and your very thoughtful reviews and tweets and DMs and comments. We read all of them. For our incredible team of producers and researchers, engineers and correspondents, especially as they helped steer the ship while I was at home learning how to breastfeed, among other things. And for the seriously dope collective that is the women and femmes who make up the meteor, our amazing partners at Pineapple Street, and our committed and brave advertisers, y'all make it a whole lot easier to stay undistracted. So we'll be back shortly, and I'll talk to y'all real soon. In the meantime, let's go get free. That's it for today and for this season, but never for tomorrow and definitely not for next season. Undistracted is a production of The Meteor and Pineapple Street Studios. Our lead producer is Rachel Ward. Our associate producer is Mary Alexa Cavanaugh. Thanks also to Treasure Brooks, Hannes Brown, Raj Makija, and Davey Sumner. Our executive producers at The Meteor are Cindy Levy and myself, and our executive producers at Pineapple are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. You can follow me at Miss Pat Getty on all social media, including TikTok now. <laughs> and you can follow our fantastic team at The Meteor. There'll be plenty of content to hold you over until the next season starts. Subscribe to Undistracted, catch up on those episodes you missed, rate and review us, and share these with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and most places you check out your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being. And as always, thanks for doing. Y'all know what it is. I'm Brittany Packnett Cunningham. And once again, let's go get free. Mm.